Um, this morning, we're going to look at the, at the Christmas narrative, the birth of our Savior. And we're going to look at through the uh, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1 here. It's funny, the Emmanuel, I don't mean to put him on the spot, but I remember my stepfather, Dennis, first started to come to uh, RHC. We were back at the H Street building, and he came up to me and said, who is Emmanuel? I said, oh, it's, a, it's a title that we have given to Christ. It's a title that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and you know, it means God with us. He's like, okay, because I was thinking, it's like, why are we singing songs to some Hispanic gentleman? Yeah. <laughs> I think this is before you're a believer, and, and it's been uh, awesome to see your growth since. So uh, we've all been there. <laughs> but uh, um, anyways, but it's good to be with you this morning. I, I am honored and, and um, pleased to give this message this morning. In the... Uh, Genesis account, we, we read of creation, the creation narrative, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and gave life to man and placed him in paradise-like conditions. And there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no death, there was no COVID. <laughs> of all these remarkable things that we read about concerning the creation narrative, one of the most remarkable things that we can be in awe of is that it was a time when man was in the presence of God and his immediate presence had perfect fellowship and communed with God. God spoke to man, which is something that we can't even begin to fathom. And this fellowship, however, was not to last. Man placing his trust not in God, but in a lie, rebelled against his creator, and sin entered the world. And man was separated from the immediate presence of God. Just as the effects of sin does, as the prophet Isaiah said, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, Isaiah 59.2. Throughout the, the Old Testament, we read of God manifesting himself in different ways. We call these theophanies, uh, a whirlwind in Job 38.1, a, a burning bush in Exodus 3.2, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in Exodus 13.21. The tabernacle itself and temple were intended to be symbols in which God's divine presence was. In fact, his divine presence did dwell in the tabernacle at the temple. We can see this in, in Exodus 25.8. His presence, though, was cut off from the people by a veil. A veil that separated the holy of holies where his presence dwelt, where only the high priest could enter once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the people. These things were types and shadows for God in all his glory and his holiness is transcendent. He is beyond and above man. And God in his mercy has revealed himself through his word, his righteousness, through his word, his law. 
But while the law reveals God's holiness, it also reveals our sinfulness. As the Apostle Paul discovered, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Romans 7, 7. It reveals how greatly we fall short, and instead of drawing us closer to his presence, it puts us at odds with our Creator. Despite times in the Old Testament in which these theophanies or the angel of the Lord appeared, this idea of God being once reconciled to man, dwelling in the immediate presence, seems to be a reality never to occur again. But Christmas is a time of us celebrating just that. A time in history, an occurrence in history, where God dwelt among us. We're going to read a, in chapter, we're going to read our text in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1, and, and we're going to be primarily focusing on verse 23, but I want to start at 18, just to give us some context here. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's uh, pause right now and, and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we, we humbly come before you, I ask that you would meet us here. That your presence, the Holy Spirit, would, would meet us here, each and every one of us this morning. And God, as we go through this narrative, as we look into your word, I pray that you would put us in awe, put us in awe of your faithfulness, put us in awe of your mercy. Put us in awe of Christ. May we walk away this morning with a deeper adoration and affection for our Savior. And if there be anybody here who does not know you, I pray and plead on their behalf that you would convict them, break them over their sin, lead them to repentance and the saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, I thank you for this undeserved, great privilege to be here this morning to present your word. It is by your mercy and your grace, Lord. Be with me now. May your word be proclaimed faithfully and purely for the glory and exaltation of Christ. We ask and pray these things in his name. Amen. Now, I have no problem admitting to you that um, I, I knew from the start where I, what when Phil asked me if I wanted to preach, what I wanted to preach on. I wanted to preach on this Emmanuel text here in, in Matthew one twenty three. I wanted to dive deep into it and, and really uh, try to edify myself and you this morning. Uh, but I have no problem telling you that getting into it, 
I wanted nothing more than to get away from this text. It is uh, a struggle. My wife can tell you how I would go back and forth and, and say, I think I've got it, and then say, I just deleted everything I just wrote out because this is too much. I, I can't. It's two sermons. I'm doing too much. Uh, it's vast. And, and so that is the word of God, right? <clears throat> the implications of this one verse are vast, and there could be many sermon series done on it alone. But as I studied and contemplated Christmas, I, I became compelled to speak on it. For this is the reason why we celebrate this Christmas holiday. It is here that we have the culmination of the Old Testament and the springboard of the New. So let us begin as we have a lot to cover in, in a short amount of time. And in feel like fashion, I have for you some, some M's today. <laughs> I don't normally do that, but... So in, in, uh, I got some M's for you today. So the first point I would like to make... The first M for you is the messianic promise. The messianic promise of Emmanuel. Now, to understand Matthew's use of this verse, we must look at the historical context in which this prophecy is penned. You see, Matthew is accused of taking the context of this verse, which is found in Isaiah chapter 7, and, and ripping it out of his context of its context and, and placing it here in his gospel and in order to fit his narrative, in order to prove his point. This is more theo, uh, liberal theo, uh, theologians who think this or accuse him of this. But as we'll see is, is what Matthew does is, is give the true meaning of the prophecy given in chapter 7 of Isaiah. <clears throat> now, Let's go ahead, and if you want to go ahead, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to be looking through 7, 8, and a little bit into 9. We're not going to exhaust it completely. I will not exhaust it as I've struggled to uh, not do as I prep this sermon. But I want, you, uh, I want us to understand why Matthew places this verse and connects it to Jesus. <clears throat> so give you a little bit of the context here. We have Isaiah, the prophet of God, meeting with King Ahaz. Now, this prophecy, this timeline, is seven centuries before the birth of Christ. So this is most likely penned around 735 B.C. And the southern kingdom, well, we have King Ahaz here, who is the king of the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, and he is um, of the Davidic line. He is a descendant of David. But he is not at all. He uh, uh, is contrasts David very much in his righteousness. Um, he practiced idolatry. He led Israel in idolatry. He even burned his own son as a sacrifice to the false god Molech in 2 Kings 16, 1-4. So a wicked king. But during his reign, the northern, northern king and kingdom of Israel, King Pekah, and the king of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, uh, Rezin, joined forces in order, in order to create a, an allegiance against the growing empire of Assyria. And they wanted to get Ahaz to join their forces. They wanted to put pressure on him to join their allegiance to fight against Assyria. And when 
Ahaz does not comply, they come against Ahaz. They will bring down Ahaz, kill him, and replace him with a puppet king who will play ball, basically. And Ahaz is, is scared and all Judah with him. Seeing his defeat as imminent, Ahaz decides to call out, not to God, but to the growing power of Assyria for aid. Being sent by the Lord, Isaiah meets Ahaz and encourages him to call out to the Lord for refuge and to place his trust in the promises of God. Now, the promises that referring, I'm referring to here is, of course, the Davidic covenant in which uh, God made a, a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, in which David was told by God, Your house and kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Verse 16. Isaiah tells Ahaz that these two kingdoms he fears will not prevail against him. And to ensure Ahaz that this will take place, Isaiah tells Ahaz to request a sign of God. Um, I believe he says a, a sign deep as um, Sheol and, and high as heaven. Basically, a rendering, basically saying a sign that natural occurrences cannot explain, a miraculous sign. Ask for that, and, he, and the Lord will give it to you, just to prove to you that this will happen. But Ahaz, and it looks as though Ahaz says, you know, he says, I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not ask for a sign. And it looks as though Ahaz has reverence here, but um, basically Ahaz is refusing God's offer. He's refusing the Lord's help. His mind is made up. He's going to cry out for a serious help. He wants to, uh, he cares not in the promises of God. He cares not in, in the word of God, the wisdom and might of God. Now what, what Ahaz wants, what Ahaz needs is real help, military aid, real strength, not promises, not words. How typical this is of us. Is it not? I mean, is this not our, our default? When confronted with, with turmoil, how quick are we to turn to God? Now, please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with seeking aid from doctors or counselors or medication or any of that. But when our backs are up against the wall, when, when we hit financial problems, marital problems, uh, work problems, stress. Why is it that the Lord, for us Christians, seems to be the last place we look? The church today is, is guilty of this, looking to the world for answers concerning how to run their church services, reach the lost, create more of an experience. And his fear, Ahaz chose an earthly king rather than the heavenly king and placed his hope in man rather than God. Now, despite Ahaz's refusal of God, Isaiah says that God will still give him a sign. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 7, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, asked a sign of the Lord, let it be a deep as Sheol and as high as heaven, but Ahaz refuses and then we read that despite the, the uh, 
refusal of Ahaz against the Lord and against his prophet. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Despite your refusal, Ahaz, I'm still going to do this. It was not contingent upon you being cooperative. I'm still going to uphold my covenant with David. But because of your refusal, I'm still going to give you a sign. And this is where he says here in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah continues that before this child is mature age, what she can choose between good and evil, these two kingdoms that Ahaz fears will be desolate. Verse 16. By 722 BC, both of these nations were laid waste by Assyria. Ahaz is warned in verse 17, so God was faithful in fulfilling his promise that he came to Ahaz with. But because of his refusal of God, Ahaz is warned in verse 17 that because of his trust in Assyria, the Lord will bring about judgment from the hands of the Assyrians who will pretty much pillage Judah, leaving it desolate as well. What we must understand is that this prophecy, like many others in the Old Testament, has a two-stage fulfillment, a present and a future. Um, this is common of, of most prophecies and covenants in the Old Testament. Uh, you think of the, the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, that in Genesis twenty two seventeen, 17, he makes it, and I believe in chapter 15, but he reiterates it in twenty two seventeen 17, and says, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring. In verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So we have immediate fulfillment in that uh, he's given a son, Isaiah, and he's given um, grandchildren, and then people of Israel starts to grow, the nation of Israel. But it has a future fulfillment, and that in Christ, all the nations through the seed of Abraham will be blessed. Uh, the, the Davidic covenant that we mentioned earlier uh, has its present fulfillment in David's son Solomon that builds a temple, but a future fulfillment in which David's throne shall be established forever in the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7, 12-17. Now, there is direct parallels between the Emmanuel of chapter 7, 14 and the birth of Isaiah's son. Now, there is a lot of different views upon this, about who this child is that, that is going to be born here in the immediate context in which Isaiah tells him, because we know that there's immediate context to this prophecy because he says that the nations that he fears, Israel, the northern part of Israel and Syria, will fall. And a sign that they will fall is that a child will be born. Most commentators and, and uh, scholars believe that this child is none other than Isaiah's own son. Some think it's Hezekiah, but Hezekiah, uh, Ahaz's son was already born at this time. Isaiah's son, <clears throat> I'm going to bo uh, butcher this, but Mahar Shalel Hajbaz, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to refer to him as Isaiah's son from here on. <laughs> the birth of Isaiah's son in chapter 8, we read concerning the prophet's wife, and I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, chapter 8, verse 3. Before Isaiah's son reaches an age of maturity, the Syrian and the northern kingdom of Israel will be carried off by Assyria, chapter 8, verse 4. 
we see that the birth of Isaiah's son, like Emmanuel, has to do with Judah's, the house of David's, preservation and deliverance from their enemy. As far as the wording here for virgin, the Hebrew word for virgin is Alma, which can mean young woman, but its deeper meaning, its more uh, deeper context, has that of virgin. Now, this is how it's been commonly translated. So we can see the distinction between Isaiah's son and this Emmanuel. With his birth, the maturity will also come the desolation of Judah, as conveyed in both 7, chapter 7, verse 15 through 16, and 8, 5 through 8, due to Ahaz's rejection of God. This is why the child eats curds and honey, which is conveyed as uh, food of, of poverty or exile-like conditions, though they won't be taken into exile by Assyria. Now, it is understood that Emmanuel is more of a title given. We understand that. The name here, Emmanuel, is a, is a title that is given that is used at the end of chapter 8, verse 8. Now, despite these parallels, Isaiah's son is merely a foreshadow of the true Emmanuel to come. Now, how do we know this? Well, by understanding and reading and studying the context of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9 reinforces a messianic perspective that is found in, my, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 of this prophecy of Emmanuel. At the end of chapter 8, the prophet describes how Israel and its king will collapse into darkness. And they will, chapter 8, verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. However, from this darkness, a great light will come. Uh, chapter 9, verse 2. The people walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Uh, this light is based upon the birth of a child who bears the authority of God upon his shoulders. This is the text in which Phil read this morning, earlier. This messianic individual in 9.6 parallels with the virgin-born son in chapter 7, verse 14 of Emmanuel. Both texts speak of the birth of a child associated with God's presence, God with us, mighty God. Both discuss how the child is born in exile and trial conditions. Both texts ensure the preservation of the divinic line. Now, it cannot be said that the child born to Isaiah is, in fact, this child. It is not fulfilled in Isaiah's son, but Isaiah's son is a foreshadow that looks forward to a greater child to come, who is the true Emmanuel. Matthew understood that this prophecy finds its true fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ, the true light of the world, John 8, 12. This Jesus was the true Emmanuel, the Messiah promised. Now, let us look at the implications and detail of this prophecy in our second point. Our second point, the miraculous birth of Emmanuel. Now, we'll be looking at the first half of this verse. Mind you, again, this morning, all we're looking at is one verse. The implications are vast. Um, the first half of the verse, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In this, I would like for us to study and look at the necessity of the virgin birth as well as the humanity and necessity of the humanity of Christ. As briefly discussed before, the word here for virgin is Alma. It can mean young maiden or woman, but primarily carries a connotation of virgin. 
The Hebrew word betula is another term that can mean virgin, but it can sometimes be used of a married woman. So it's no doubt, or no, uh, no doubt that Isaiah didn't use that word, but the more proper word for virgin, Alma. Uh, the translators of the Hebrew Old Testament to the Greek, the, what we know as the Septuagint, understood that this is why the word uh, understood that the word here was in fact virgin, why they uh, translated it to Parthenos and the Septuagint, which simply means virgin. Now, when we examine the usage of the word conceived and give birth, we hear echoes of prominent births of the Old Testament. Genesis 21-2, where Sarah, who was barren, conceived and bore Isaac, the covenant son promised to Abraham. The birth of Moses, Exodus 2.12, the woman conceived and bore a son. Samson's mother, who was also barren, but was told by an angel, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son, Judges 13.3. And the mother of the great prophet Samuel was likewise barren, but conceived and bore a son, 1 Samuel 1.20. These births are often tied to God intervening miraculously or, or protecting uh, giving protection to important individuals and in his plan. There's no doubt that the virgin birth exceeds these miraculous births, exceeds these scenarios of all of Isaac, Moses, Samson, or Samuel. This child born of a virgin surpasses all other births and is unquestionably sets him apart from all others. But is that the reason why Jesus is born of a virgin? Simply to be a sign? simply to set him apart? The purpose of the virgin birth was not simply to do this, but was also to abstain him from the inherent sinfulness of Adam. See, what we must understand is when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. The nature, that perfect nature that Adam and Eve had was then corrupted by sin. And sin infiltrates every aspect of the world. All of creation groans, as Paul says. And it infiltrates our minds, our thoughts, our desires. As Paul reveals in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Just as you get physical traits from your parents, we get, we get spiritual traits from them as well, dating all the way back to Adam. From Adam, passed on, uh, when he sinned, got a new nature, a sin nature. And this nature was passed on. We can see this. Who was the firstborn man? Cain. What did he do? Commit murder. We can see that this sinfulness is born in us. It is natural in us. Man inherently is not good, despite what the world says. That perfect spotless nature that Adam once enjoyed was replaced by this corrupted sinful nature. This is why David says in Psalm, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5 The virgin birth bypasses this transmission of sin nature and allow the eternal God to become perfect man. This virgin shall bear a son. That's the second part of that 
first verse. Now, why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? Why didn't Jesus just appear as a perfect spotless baby from the angel Gabriel to Mary's arms? Why must Jesus be physically born? And please note, there is so many things that we can go into here. But if you don't want this sermon to be four hours long, I just kind of condensed it down. So um, I'm sure there's things I, I won't hit on, uh, and others will make me aware of that after the sermon. Um, but these are the things that I felt necessary to bring this morning. But it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a woman <clears throat> that he might be fully man. Now, due to the Roman Catholic heretical exaltation of Mary, I, I tend to fall in the other side of the horse um, and think of Mary as nothing more than just a vessel that carries Jesus. But that's not true because we have to be careful here. Now, we don't want to exalt Mary, but we have to be careful because denying the physical connection between Mary and Jesus would be implied that Jesus was not truly human-born. It is through the pregnancy of Mary that Jesus assumes his physical nature, his humanity, and takes on that human nature. Now, it is also necessary for Jesus to be physically born in order to fulfill the Davidic covenant. In both Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus' birth, we read of Jesus' physical lineage to King David through both Joseph and Mary. It is through Jesus that God faithfully honors his covenant with David that your house and kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, 2 Samuel 7, 16. It is interesting to note that after the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD, all descendant documentation was lost in Rome, Rome's sacking of Jerusalem. There is no record of descendants of David after Jesus. Jesus must be born of woman so that he could also be under the law. This is something that really doesn't get talked about a lot, but he must be under the law. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4.4. 4. It's not enough that Jesus just die and pay for our sins, but he must also attain the righteousness that we have lost. The righteousness that we cannot attain for ourselves. In the great exchange, we give to Jesus our sin, and he gives to us this perfect righteousness. Through Adam, man forfeited his righteousness and therefore subdued all humanity to condemnation. But through this second Adam, this righteousness, righteousness has been redeemed for us in him. Romans 5.18 states, Therefore, as one trespass, or one trespass has, led, has been redeemed... I'm sorry, read the wrong one. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5, 18 through 19. In order for this to be done, in order for this to be accomplished, 
He must be born under the law so that he can fulfill it and obey it perfectly. For God requires perfect obedience to his law and payment for transgressions against it. In Christ, both of these are delivered. This is why the author of Hebrews quotes the psalmist saying, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Hebrews 10.5 Now it is a sad fact that in many liberal circles today, the virgin birth is denied. And recent polls taken shows that the belief in the virgin birth is declining rapidly amongst Christians, dare I call them that. Jesus, listen to me carefully, Jesus cannot be our Emmanuel if he is not virgin born. And he cannot be the Messiah promised to save us from our sin unless he is God with us. This is how important the virgin birth is. MacArthur says of this, quote, Jesus, virgin birth, his substitutionary atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and return are all integral aspects of his deity. They stand or fall together. If any of these teachings is rejected, the entire gospel is rejected, end quote. The awe of the virgin birth can fade amongst the commercialization of Christmas. We can grow numb to it with the nativity scenes we see. We can grow numb of, of singing songs concerning it. But let that not be true of us. What intricacies, what measures, what far-reaching implications what awe we should have whenever the virgin birth is comprehended and considered. And what encouragement it brings that we have not a Savior that does not empathize with us, but on the contrary, as Hebrew 4.15 4, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect of respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus slept. He became weary. He got hungry. He wept. He experienced pain. He experienced death. What great encouragement that is for us this morning. What great encouragement the humanity of Christ can bring us in the midst of our trials. That we don't have a God who is completely unable to sympathize or empathize with us, but in Christ understands that which we go through because he went through it yet without sin. He is truly our perfect representative, and mediator. Now, as awe-inspiring and necessary and important the virgin birth and humanity of Christ is, the second half of the text is equally important. It says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is a title, which means God with us. This is so important because up to now, everything I have said could be repeated in a Mormon tabernacle or Jehovah's Witness service. But it is the deity of Christ which must be equally as important as his humanity. And this brings us to our third point, the manifestation of Emmanuel. Apparently my printer got some blank pages. 
Matthew has made clear that when it comes to the incarnation of Jesus, he was not merely sent from God, but born of him. Matthew stresses upon the divine origin of Jesus, for he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18, Luke 1.35, and God was his father. Now, this does not indicate that there was a time, as Arian controversies so heretically said, that there was never a time where he was not. Jesus was pre-existent with God. Just as John states in the opening chapter of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We must be clear at this point because there is great confusion. Jesus did not lay aside his deity to become our incarnate Emmanuel. He did not give up his deity. It is, uh, or, nor, or nor did it decrease by any measure, which is another heresy. As Colossians 2.9, speaking of Christ, says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, firstborn there means uh, the Greek word potatakos, which means preeminent. Uh, the idea that Paul has here is that he has a right and privilege given to the firstborn son uh, during this time. The Bible is very clear of the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It has been said that in the case of Jesus, you have subtraction by addition. And it's not to say that anything was subtracted from Christ. Merely, uh, there is given an appearance of subtraction by the addition of his humanity. Imagine with me, if you would, a king of a great empire and the king looks out to his subject and wants to know what it's like. What is it like to truly live as a subject in my kingdom? So he puts on him, over his royal clothes, rags. He, he takes dirt and, and, and puts it over his face that he might not be recognized. He messes up his hair. And he leaves his kingdom he leaves his kingdom to live amongst the, his subjects in poverty, and he allows himself to experience real hunger, real cold, real poverty, real life as a, as a peasant. Now, there's no point in this scenario in which the king ceased to be the king. At any point, he can tear off the rags that cover his royal robes and show his signet ring and reveal who he truly is. This is a, a good example of what Christ has done. He has put on his humanity, and this is exactly what happens at, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where it's not that Jesus gets divinity bestowed upon him at this point, but rather he pulls back the rags, if you will, of his humanity, revealing his deity. Matthew 17 this is what's meant by Paul when he says of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 
Jesus manifests his deity through his power over nature, Mark 4, 35 through 41. Power over sickness, John 4, 47 through 50. Power over disease, Matthew 8, 2. Power over demons, Matthew 8, 16 and 31. And power over sin, Mark 2, 5. And then power over death, Matthew 9, 25. But was it necessary for God or for Jesus to be God? We already affirmed that the Bible makes clear that Jesus was God in full. But was it necessary for Christ to be God? We've already seen the necessity of his humanity. But just as necessary as necessary, necessary as his humanity is, so must his deity. For no other could pay the price for our salvation. No other could drink the full cup of the wrath of God on the cross. Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, those of you who took church history will remember him, the five of you. Um, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be a person who could. This is in his writings, Why God Became Man. We, in our helplessness, could never help ourselves. Our sin only grows, and only the infinite God becoming one with us could pay the debt and rescue us. He must be God, for he cannot be Emmanuel, God with us, if he is anything less. He cannot be our Savior promise. Therefore, the title Emmanuel is appropriate with Jesus. The implications of the truth are immeasurable. For God in this transcendent glory is God above us, God beyond us. And God, through his law, shows our sinfulness, making it God against us. But in the person of Jesus Christ, in this Emmanuel, we have God with us, God for us. May we marvel at the thought of this, that which, that which angels long to look into. The Word became flesh, that the infinite should become the infant. Now concerning this long-awaited Emmanuel foretold by the prophets, how might we expect his arrival? The arrival of this creator God who, who stoops down to take on flesh of his own rebellious creation. Here we will look at the meekness of Emmanuel. Now, we have already touched on the humility of Jesus simply by his incarnation, but consider the manner in which he arrives that first Christmas night. Born not in the capital city of Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, the city of David, which was one of the smallest cities. Born not to wealthy, prestigious parents, but to poor, humble nobodies. Born not in a, in a palace or kingdom, welcome with celebration, but in a stable with animals. I mean, think of the call of the shepherds in the field when the, and the angels came forth and, and told them, to, for unto you is, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, Luke 2, 11 through 12. 
I don't know if you, if I were, if I were, was these shepherds, I'd be walking toward Bethlehem saying, I hear the angel write that our Savior would be laying in a feeding trough? Think of the, the wise men, the, uh, the magi, as they're called, the wise men that travel a great distance in order to pay homage to this great king born to the Jews. When they arrive, they, they find this child. And I say child, not baby, because texts make it pretty clear that the wise men probably didn't get there until Jesus was probably closer to almost two years of age. So go home, take those wise men out of your nativity scene. It's not accurate. Get them out of there. Got to be scripturally sound here, people. But they find this unassuming, meek child with his poor parents, with no accolades around him. This is the king of the Jews? His meek arrival sets a tone for the life he was to live. This king of kings who had no crown, this conquering savior that bore no sword, the Lord of all who had no place to lay his head. This meekness finds its ultimate culmination in the cross. The whole narrative of Jesus' birth is the exact opposite of what we might imagine for the coming Messiah, God with us, this Emmanuel. We, like King Ahaz, look at strength through the lenses of the world, but the Lord sees not as man sees, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, 1 Corinthians 1, 25. Let this meekness surrounding the birth of our Lord be a lesson and reminder to us here who are in Christ that may be struggling, may be hurting, may be struggling to understand your circumstances, struggling to find answers. Let this meek arrival of Jesus, our Emmanuel, bring comfort to you this morning. To Mary, a baby conceived by God, Emmanuel, God with his clothed in frail humanity. To the shepherds, a baby laying in a manger, so helpless but declared to God to be our Savior. To the wise men, no kingdom, no regal splendor, but foretold by the prophets to be our great king. God seldomly comes and appears as we expect him, but always provides us exactly what we need. As we begin to wrap this up, let us reflect on, on what we have looked at thus far and examine the implications. Jesus was the Messiah promised. Matthew, more than any other, the gospel writer stresses that in Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies have their accomplishments in the Lord Jesus. This Jesus is Emmanuel to come, and we are to look for none other. God is faithful and trustworthy, and we, like Ahaz, should find, unlike Ahaz, should find comfort in the promises of God. The sign of Isaiah's son born was given to foreshadow the coming of Jesus and just as surely as that son was born, we were sure of the coming Messiah. And as assured as Jesus was born, as God's word says, he will come again. We can be assured of his second coming, his second advent. Why? Because of his first. 
And just as God's word was faithful and true of our Lord's first, so it will be true of his second. And this leads me to examine our next point, the miraculous birth. We looked at the miraculous birth of our Lord. The conception of our Lord was brought on by the Holy Spirit. And his birth was necessary for our salvation. But I tell you today, there is another birth that is necessary for your salvation. The rebirth of oneself. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. This rebirth is likewise conceived by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And bears itself in faith and repentance. If not, or let the question be asked of you this morning, have you, have you been born again truly? Are you sure? If not, then you of all people should despise, as Phil said two weeks ago, should despise the Christmas season. For it is a reminder, a constant reminder of the gift given in which you have rejected. For this child is not born unto you, as Spurgeon said, unless you are first born unto him. Now, it was not enough that Jesus be fully human, but he must be also fully God. In this, we, we examine the manifestation. God was fully manifested in Jesus Christ. This was attested through his deeds and works. There was no doubt. I ask you today, has Christ been made manifest in you who claim and bear the title of Christian? You who call in the name of Christ as your Savior, is Christ manifested in your life? Is he manifested in your thoughts? Is he manifested in your speech? Is he manifested in your actions, in your desires, in your hopes? Is Christ manifested in you? Hear the cry of the Apostle Paul to his beloved in Galatia, for whom he was in great anguish over, and he says, until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19. Examine yourself this morning. Examine yourself yesterday, this last week. Was Christ, our Savior, manifested through you? Can others attest to it? This manifestation of God in Christ came through the meekest of arrivals. The meekest of means. You know, when Ahaz was confronted by Isaiah, he was not given an ultimatum. He wasn't told, if you place your trust in God, then I will do this. Then I will rescue you from these nations. No. Refuge was not his reward. The Lord, through Isaiah, tells Ahaz that he will bring about refuge, chapter 7, verse 3, 3 through 9. I'm going to do this. But it is only after this good news is given to Ahaz in which the Lord, or that he is told that to ask for a sign. And it is after Ahaz's rejection of the Lord and 
misplaced trust in Assyria that Isaiah tells Ahaz of the coming destruction. Salvation has come. It is here in our Lord Jesus. But if you likewise place your trust in this world, place your trust in man, place your trust in yourself, then you too shall also perish. If indeed you are in Christ, I have one last M for you. As we wrap things up, the mission, the mission of Christmas. It is interesting that Matthew opens his gospel account with this idea of God with us. Chapter 1, the very last words in which Matthew pins and his gospel, chapter 28, 20, is that of our Lord, where he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words followed Jesus' commissioning of his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel. We have spent this morning examining the Christmas narrative. But when you get right down to it, what, what have I done here? I've simply given you the gospel. And that is, that is the point. The message of Christmas, the message of Emmanuel, the reason why I entitled it simply Emmanuel because in that title is all we have and all we need for the explanation of Christmas. That God and Jesus Christ, fully God and man, were reconciled together in the person of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? God reconciling man to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. The message of Christmas, the message of Emmanuel, is the message of the gospel. God and man reconciled. God and sinner reconciled. So our mission as we go out into this Christmas week is the same as it is every week. Proclaim the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas, the message of Emmanuel, God with us. Let us pray. Father, we come to you humbly and we glorify your name. We give you praise. Thank you for this message. Not my message, not Cameron's message. The message of the gospel. The message of your faithfulness to rebellious, sinful people. Thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the grace. 
Thank you for the love. Thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. If there be any here who does not know you, I pray that you press upon them these truths, that you would lead them in deep conviction over their sin, lead them to repentance, lead them to surrenderance, to the meek message of the gospel, but the powerful message of the gospel. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. We give you praise. Be glorified now as we sing this last song to you. Be glorified in our worship. And I pray, Lord, that we not go out of these doors without growing in a deeper adoration, growing more in love of, our, of your Son, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray and we ask these things in his name. Amen.